Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. All righty, let's try that again. Because come on, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. Daylight savings time stinks. I, I, I get it, right? There are like all these states opting out of daylight savings time. I really hope Ohio becomes next in line and we get rid of this nonsense. But that being said, understand, it's a beautiful day. We had great worship. Kentucky won. Duke lost. It's a great weekend. <laughs> so, let's try that again. Good morning, Christ Community Church. There we go. All righty. So, we're going to be here in just a second. We're going to be in uh, the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. So, have your Bible. That's where you want to go, or your Bible app, or whatever you want to do. Mark chapter 9. We're going to work through that today, and we're especially going to hit one part of it. Now, I know that this is showing my age. It, it, some of it will be showing yours, but how many of you remember listening on the radio to Paul Harvey? The rest of the story, do you remember that? Okay. So now, here's one of the stories I heard him tell. And he told a story about it, it's 1790s America. And so these three soldiers are out, and understand America had a very, very, very small army and militia. But there's these three soldiers out, and a, a large tree has fallen, blocking the path through, through the horses would go. And, and two guys are struggling to try to get this tree out of the way. And, and you need to remember that the average height and weight of a dude about that time was about 5'5", five, five, 120 pounds. So, you know, they were really struggling. And one guy, this third guy, he was just on horseback, and he's just watching all of a sudden, another guy comes along, really big, burly guy. He comes riding along. And he looks over and says, why aren't you helping them with that tree? And the guy goes, I don't help. I'm a corporal. I give orders. And the guy, big guy, goes, oh, okay. Jumps off his horse, walks over, helps the guys get the tree over. Turned around, looked at the guy, said, next time you need help moving a tree, don't call the corporal, call the commander-in-chief. It was George Washington. Now, I tell you that story for, for this reason. There's a common misconception that, I, that, I, that I've heard a lot of, which is when we talk about arrogance and humility, when we talk about those two traits, we tend to, I think, uh, misunderstand them a bit. And, and I'll tell you what I mean. Arrogance is not knowing that you're good at something. That's just a fact. So let me put it this way. If somebody walked up to Michael Jordan and said, are you any good at basketball? And Jordan went, I'm okay. That's obviously a joke. If Michael Jordan is asked, are you any good at basketball? He said, yeah, I was very good. That's not being arrogant. That's being honest. And so we have a tendency to look at that when people know they're good at something, um, and people know what they know and how well they know it, that's not arrogant. That is not, in and of itself, arrogant. And we should never, ever feel that way, because if you think about it, you don't want that. You all seen the commercials on there, you know, just okay is not okay. 
do you really want to have major surgery with a doctor who comes in and is like, is he any good? Eh. You know, you want the doctor coming in there, I got this, I'm going to take care of you, I know what I'm doing, let's take care of it. That's not arrogant. It's not. If you've earned a degree, you know your stuff, you're at the top of your game, and somebody asks you, do you know this, and you say, yeah, that's not arrogant. And so we need to keep that in mind. True arrogance comes when you, no matter what you're good at or whatever, true arrogance is looking at other people as if they're below you. Now, if I am in a hospital, the doctor knows more about medicine than I do, hopefully. I probably know more about theology, hopefully. And so, you know, it doesn't matter. Somebody can be really good at this and not really good at that. We all have different gifts. We all have that. And knowing that is just emotional intelligence. That's just knowing who you really are. Arrogance comes when you begin to look at other people as beneath you or any task as beneath you. That's arrogance. Arrogance does not see other people as people. They don't see them as people made in the image and likeness of God. Arrogance is seeing other people as either an audience or competition. That's narcissism. That's where that comes from, is that people exist either to tell me how great I am or they exist to get out of my way. That's arrogance, and humility is knowing who you are, knowing what you're good at, but always looking at other people as equal in value and worth. That's humility. I bring that up for this reason. Let's jump into Mark 9. We'll do the first 13 verses first. Here we go. And he, the he being Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, stop there for a second. He is not talking about his second coming. That is not what he's talking about there. He says the kingdom of God coming in power. In just a minute, we're going to see what he means by the kingdom of God coming into power. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Here is the kingdom of God in glory and power, by the way. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Anybody ever been in that situation? You don't know what to say, so you babble anyway? That's what's going on. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Spoiler alert, they do not listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. This transfiguration they have just seen, 
This is the kingdom of God coming in glory and power. This is what Jesus was referring to. That's why he said, some will not die before they see it. The kingdom of God, at the end of the day, is all about Jesus Christ. And understand that. You've heard me say this before, but sometimes I, I really think we struggle with this. And, you know, as I warned a couple weeks ago, I've already seen CNN's doing a who was Jesus stuff, and they're going to mess that up like they always do. And, but you need to understand that when Jesus returns, the Bible is very clear, especially the book of Revelation. Jesus is not going to appear in the clouds, 90 pounds soaking wet, nice hair, you know, uh, a glass of herbal tea and a yoga mat. That is not how Jesus will appear. Jesus will look like this, bright white, dazzling, and it will be fear-inducing. That's what he will look like. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And you're sitting there going, how could they not know what rising from the dead meant? These have to be 12 of the dumbest people ever assembled in one place. I mean, this is clear. Jesus is sitting there going, look, here's how it's going to go down. And he's going to say it again here in a minute. He's going, look. Um, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to basically turn myself in. They're going to torture me. I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And they're going, what does he mean by that? And we're sitting there going, how could they ask such stupid questions? This is where this all ties in. We're about to see that the disciples had a fair bit of arrogance. And they had a fair bit of a distorted worldview. And this happens to all of us. None of us want to hear what we don't want to hear. I can always tell when I've hit a sore spot with somebody. If I'm in a counseling situation, and, and Megan and I were counseling a, a couple yesterday, and I can always tell I've hit a sore spot when I see one of the people, their eyes start, they go from me, and they go into the air, or to the ground, or to the wall, they're not listening, and they're not listening because they don't want to hear what I'm saying. And so we all are guilty of this, and the disciples were also. They have seen this guy walk around, create food out of midair. They have seen him walk on water. They have seen him still storms. They have seen him do heal people, raise the dead, all this other kind of stuff, they don't want to hear anything about him being turned over to their enemies and dying. What they want to hear about is, when are you going to really show things off? When is the power really going to fly? And oh, by the way, we, we, we get a front row ticket to the show, right? We're VIPs. That's their problem. Because prejudice, your own prejudice, your own bias will blind and deafen you. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then it is written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. All right, what is he all talking about here? 
And why is it that he showed the disciples his heavenly being, how he looks now on his throne, and the two people that come and counsel with him are Moses and Elijah. The simple fact is this. It comes from the prophecies in the Old Testament. If you remember, if you know your Old Testament, Moses said, one day God will raise up another prophet like me. Now, what does that mean? It means a prophet who will lead the people of God into the promised land. Out of slavery and into the promised land. What does Jesus do? He rescues us from sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. He leads us into an eternity with God. What's he doing? The same thing Moses did except with an eternal impact. That's why Moses. What about Elijah? What did Elijah do? Elijah went to the people of God and said, you're not being the people of God. You're running off, you're paying lip service to God, but what your hearts are far from God, all you're really doing is playing religion. And you're putting up with corruption everywhere, and it's got to stop. What does Jesus do? First John the Baptist, who was the second Elijah, then Jesus comes along, what does he say? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why would he have to tell the people of God to repent? Because their own prejudices, because their own biases, because all that they wanted, they were far from God. They didn't want God, they just wanted what God could give them. Aren't you glad we're all over that? That's why. That's why. And when he says Elijah has come and they've done everything they want with him, he's talking about John the Baptist. And it's all prophecy. How are we doing? We tracking? We're good? All right. Verse 14. Let's go 14 through 29. And when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law, those are the Jewish leaders, arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. This is another little kid from the very early on. Again, this is probably not a Jewish kid. This is probably a pagan kid. Israel was not just a Jewish country. There were Romans there, Greeks there, so forth. There are all kinds of people there. And, and now you're going to ask, how can the demon possess a little kid? But unfortunately, that has been pretty well documented. Remember I said this a few weeks ago, The Exorcist. If you've seen the movie The Exorcist, it's based on a true story. Except it was a little boy, not a little girl. And it was a little boy who was playing around with a Ouija board. And in Israel, there were all kinds of pagan temples and pagan rituals and all that kind of stuff, false religions, false gods, all that kind of stuff. And that's how you open the door to that. And that includes kids. That includes anyone. Now, I understand what some of you are thinking. Hey, yeah, I never see nobody demon-possessed in this country. That's because in this country, it actually worked contrary to what the devil wants. The whole reason William Peter Blatty wrote The Exorcist is he said he wanted to write a sermon people couldn't fall asleep during, and he said that, and by the way, I think he succeeded at that, and he said that if he can get people to believe in the devil, then he can get to believe him in God because he saw the rise of atheism in the 60s and it bothered him. If you see demon possession and you can't explain it and you're an atheist, 
you suddenly have a problem. And the devil doesn't want you to have that problem if you're an atheist. But you see this in third world countries all the time. When I talk to missionary friends, they see it on a weekly basis. Because there, if a demon shows up, they, they're not atheists there going, uh-oh. They run off to some voodoo priest or whatever, which is what Satan wants. Get it? Whenever it seizes him, that's the demon, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. I'll show you why he said that here in a second. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus... It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can't, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. And this next verse is almost my life verse, folks, 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind could only come out by prayer. Okay, what's going on there? First of all, he says, how long do I have to put up with you? He's talking about the disciples, because even he's like, you got to be kidding me. He said, I just gave you authority to throw out demons, and now you can't do it. And there's only one reason why it wouldn't work when they'd already been given the authority. Because when they began authority, the authority came from God. They were supposed to turn to God. They have it. They've become arrogant, and they thought they could do it themselves. The reason why Jesus says, you know, this comes out by prayer, is he's saying that in the end, any time the demonic is defeated, that's a work of God. You cannot beat the devil. Only God can. It's only the power of God that can do that. If you've got some kind of issue, and this has popped up a couple times. Dad's dealt with it more. But, and you've got something going on where you think is demonic. Okay, Matt Rawlings, by myself, cannot do anything about it. I, I can't. I haven't got that power. You know, I have a seminary degree. I went to seminary, not Hogwarts. I can't do anything about that. I am a minister, not a magician. I do not have any power over the demonic. What I can do is pray that God does something and put yourself out there as an instrument or a tool of God for God to do it. And that's what's going on here. They're trying to rely on their own power, their own prestige, all this other kind of stuff. And he's going, you've got to be kidding me. Anytime you see... Some religious leader get up and make it all about themselves, run the other way. 
That's what's going on here. They're getting puffed up. They're allowing their, they're allowing their bias and prejudice to see, make how they see the world, how they see Jesus. That's the danger. Here we go. 932, we'll see it again. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus does not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Again, I know, you're sitting there going, man, these people are dumb. But they really weren't, and they show later that they weren't. Now, it, it is true, this is, as I said last night, and some of you, if you've taken my classes, you know it. Uh, there is an argument in Greek um, that some Greek scholars make. Peter is not Peter's name. That's his nickname. Jesus gave him the name Peter. Now, you'll see it translated in your NIV Bible as rock. But actually, some Greek scholars have argued that term can actually be rockhead. And so he gets it, that Peter is just this way. But he really wasn't dumb. They were just, they could not get over their own desires and biases, and especially their, their desire to be important. And you can't be important if the person who gives you importance says he's going to die, willingly. And they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what are you were arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. That would be God the Father. Okay, what's he talking about there? I want to make sure this is clear because sometimes this gets distorted. He is not saying for you to have a childlike faith in the sense that you're just ignorant. That's, you just, I heard it, I believe it, that's the end of it. That is not what the Bible teaches. 1 Peter 3.15 says you have to be able to defend your faith. You can't defend your faith if you don't think through your faith. God gave you a mind for a reason. When he's saying like a child, he's talking about trust. Because there will still be times as a Christian working this stuff through where it still will not make complete sense to you. Like the Trinity? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? How God exists outside of time? There was time before time? He's saying that you will get to the point where, as Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to the Lord. God's not going to spell everything out for you. And at that moment, you just got to trust him. The disciples here do not understand how a Messiah could go and willingly die. And he's saying, like this kid, you just need to trust me. And kids will do that. Anybody ever been involved in a trust fall exercise? Yeah? I ain't never doing one. Because I don't trust anybody. A trust fall exercise, you stand like this, they blindfold you, you close your eyes, and the person that you're working out some kind of relationship with, they stand behind you, you close your eyes and fall and trust them to catch you. 
I don't trust anybody to do that. Because part of me knows that nearly all my friends and my wife would think it would be really funny just to watch me fall. But when my son was very young, many, many moons ago, he used to have this thing he started to do where he tried to crawl out of his crib. And I walked in one day because he was not old enough to understand this whole baby monitor thing that I, you know, that I was watching. And so I see him, he's getting up there, he's getting one leg over, and I'm like, uh-oh. And so I go running, and I get in there, and there he is, and he looks up at me like, nothing, go, nothing to see here, move along. And I'm like, come here. And I, I start to walk over, and what he does is he starts to try to swing himself. I can't tell if he was trying to jump off or jump back in, but he's moving his legs around, and he gets both feet up on the top of the crib. I'm like, oh, and so I get over there with him and said, Jackson, jump. And he looks at a big grin on his face, whoom, and he jumps. I wouldn't do that for anyone now. But kids will just do it. Right? Little kids will just trust you. Jump. Okay? And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about that kind of trust. He's saying, look. You've seen what I do, right? So it may not make sense to you, but you need to trust me. And part of that problem is trusting Jesus is getting over yourself. Because you'll never really understand Jesus until you get into the mindset where you are not the most important thing in your life. God is and deserves to be. All right, let's keep going. 9, 38 through 41. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name, remember, remember what that means, in my name means according to my will, my purpose, in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Here's the problem again. They're saying, hey, hey, we saw people out there driving out demons in your name and they weren't one of us. And he's sitting there just kind of like, oh my gosh. He said, don't you guys get it? You couldn't drive out the last demon because it was all about you. And now you're telling other people who can because they trust me that they can't do it because they're not in your inner circle because they're not getting your attention, knock it off. One of the things that hurts the church worldwide more than anything else, and I've seen this firsthand when I've worked with large ministries, when ministries become jealous of other ministries... Now, there may be reasons to call out other ministries. Like, I mean, unfortunately, there are charlatans out there. Just as Paul predicted, there are wolves in the sheepfold. I get that. And that's when you do have to do that. But if somebody's being biblical and they're succeeding, praise God. 
just because it's not you. I remember when I was uh, in Texas, and I'm in Texas, and, and, and a guy that used to preach in Abilene down the street from me uh, took over a church in Dallas. And he takes over this church, this Baptist church in Flower Mound, Texas, which is about 20 minutes north of the Dallas airport. And he's, he has this Baptist church. First Sunday he's there, 120 people. A year later, 1,000 people. A year after that, 5,000 people. Now it's about 15,000. And the guy doing the preaching, Matt Chandler, as far as I can tell, is a thoroughly grounded, godly man who believes Scripture. But I have friends in Texas, well, they're just growing because of this, well, they're just growing because of that. Who cares? The guy's preaching the Bible. He believes it. People are coming to faith. Shut up. Get over yourself. This is not the business to get in if you want attention for yourself. It will not end well for you. And that's one of the things that, one of the tests that dad always has is this, because this will happen every once in a while. Every once in a while, someone will come in the church, and they'll say, I've been called to preach, so I need to come here and preach and teach. And dad will say, great, go clean the toilet. And the guy will go, what? No, I'm not here to clean the toilet. I'm here to preach. And dad's response is, until you're willing to clean the toilet, you shouldn't be preaching. And he's right, for once. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. 942. If anyone causes one of these little ones, little ones is Jesus' shorthand for, my, for Christians, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm that eats them do not die and the fire is never quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves. Be at peace with each other. What he is telling them is this. One, keep this in mind. Sin is not just your own mistake. Sin often affects others and causes them to sin. It spreads like a cancer. And Jesus is saying, you need to take it that seriously. And then he says, because look, if you lose your salt, salt at that time was the only preservative they really had. No refrigeration, you use salt. He's saying, if you're not helping, what good are you? And he's trying to get this through his disciples' heads, and he's trying to get it through our head. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to this. Arrogance always comes from thinking you're better, living a life in comparison to someone else. The moment you start living a life of comparison, you are at risk of becoming arrogant 
And also, by the way, to quote Teddy Roosevelt, if you live a life of comparison, it just sucks all the joy out of life. It just does. And the disciples struggle with this, and we'll see them struggle with that, and we struggle with this. The greatest battle that we fight every day is with ourselves. And I mean, if the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years struggle with this, how much more do we? I love that it's so funny. At the end of John, it's a little morbid, but it's still funny. At the end of John, when, when Jesus is walking, the resurrected Christ is walking with Peter, and he basically says, Peter, it's okay. You know, do you love me? All right, we're good. We're on good terms. It's all right. And then he tells him, oh, but by the way, uh, you're going to die young and die badly. And Peter's response is, John's right behind him. He goes, well, what about him? Uh, your first response, God himself has told you, hey, look, things are not going to end well for you. And his first response, going back to that comparison thing, is, well, is he going to die badly and young too? I'm not the only one, right? And Jesus' response is, you know what? You let me deal with people the way I want to deal with them, and you worry about yourself. But it all comes down to that, and even within the Christian world, it's there. That, that desire to compare yourself to others, to see others as your audience or your competition, instead of fellow creatures of God. You know, you've heard me say it many times, you're probably sick of it, but, but I don't know how else to put it. If you have a better way, fine, great, I'll, I'll use it. I'll even give you credit the first time. Second time, it's somebody told me, third time, it's mine. That's how it works. Now, within the universe, you need to understand, again, it is Jesus and everybody else. There is no VIP section, there is no champagne room, there is Jesus and everyone else, and that's the way it is. And you can't look down on anyone. <coughs> I, um, it was funny because yesterday my wife and I were helping this couple who are getting ready to get married. And so we sat down, had lunch with them, and talked to them for a couple of hours. And, and so I was telling them a story. Oops, sorry. I hate this microphone. It doesn't like me either. Um, I was telling stories talking about how one of the most important things you can do as a couple is you have to find something you can do together that you both enjoy doing. Because as many as you know, as you get older, you know, you may get married because you thought they were hot, but then they get older and things change. And so if you're not really good friends with each other, things are going to go badly. And so you have to have that friendship thing going on. And, and so I was telling you, you got to find something in common. Even though that has gone bad before, I told that to one couple. This couple was just arguing. This is many years ago. This couple was arguing, and their, and their fights were starting to get violent. Not at each other, but it was one of those kind of petty things like throwing glasses or something stupid like that. It was escalating and escalating. And so I sat down with him, and I was walking him through this. And, and so I'm like, I, one of the things I told him is, okay, you got to be friends. you got to find something to do together. You can't just come home, eat, and just go into separate parts of the house and expect to get along. You, you have to find something to do together. And he's like, okay. And then they, they come back the next week, and he says, good news. He said, uh, we found something to do together. I said, 
What? We bought guns and we're going shooting. I said, wait a minute. You're having fights that are getting violent and your response to that is to arm yourselves? I took the guy aside, I said, that's like saying, you know what, I want to commit suicide, but I want it to be a surprise. So with some footnotes, I offer this advice. You know, you have to find something to do. And so, and Megan and I, we, we, you know, we just come at things differently. You know, she loves like jazz and she loves like Hallmark movies. And I like action movies and horror movies and, and heavy metal. And so it's like, where can we come together? We did find out that we both love to watch TED Talks. Now, if you don't know what TED Talks are, um, they're out of largely started in Silicon Valley. A bunch of tech billionaires got together, and they host this conference where kind of cutting-edge kind of people come and talk about what they're doing for 15 minutes or an hour or whatever. And so we watch TED Talks. And sometimes I agree with them, sometimes I don't. They're always kind of interesting. They had this kid on, a really young guy, and not too long ago. And he started off by saying this. He said, you know, as a millennial, he said, all my life I have heard, I've heard this advice. Be yourself. Be yourself. Teachers tell me, be yourself. When I graduate from high school, all these cards, when I'm going off to college, remember, be yourself. He said, that's the stupidest advice you could ever give somebody. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. What if you're a jerk? And he said, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I have to disagree with my fellow millennials. It's not about being yourself. Every day it should be about being your better self. And he's right. He's absolutely right. And so how do you get there? How do you get over that and get to that point? Now, I've got some points in your bulletin you can look at. I don't have time to go over all of them today because I want to show you a, a film clip here in a second, then we'll quit. But two things I'll hit real hard, and it's going to sound like a bumper sticker slogan, but folks, this is just how this works. Okay, it's like, you know, when I, when I lost 70 pounds, I don't know how many people in the church came up to me and said, how'd you do it? I said, I quit eating so much, and I did more. And they're like, yeah, but how did you do it? Like, you got to have a drug there somewhere. Like, no. You get on the treadmill for 45 minutes, and you don't stuff yourself like a pig. That's it. Okay, this kind of thing, how do you get over arrogance and, 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 and get to a place of humility? It starts with prayer. And it starts with praying for other people more than you pray for yourself. And really pray for them. And when you pray, one of the things you need to do is put yourself in that person's shoes. And ask yourself, what if that were me? Or what if that was my spouse? Or what if that was my father? Right now in Columbus, Daryl Lewis, our brother Daryl Lewis, is fighting for his life. And he and Vicki need your prayers every single day. And don't let it go by. You need to ask yourself, what if you were Daryl? What if you were Vicki? What if you were Eric? What if you were in this situation? How would you feel? What would you want? Pray for others. 
And then when you read through the Gospels, read with a highlighter. I know it's real easy to go through like we have and think, man, the apostles were dum-dums. But do you have your blind spots? And don't let it get to the point, because here's the thing. I tell you to pray for humility, but that's dangerous. Because God will bring it. And it ain't fun. But that's how you do it. One of the things I've tried to look at is leaders who have made a real impact, who are first and foremost noted for their humility. Um, last week, our weekends typically at, at, at my house are just rock and roll all night and party all day. Um, I'm watching Netflix and Megan's doing homework. That's typically our weekend. And sometimes she's doing homework till midnight, whatever, because uh, she's finishing up her master's degree. And so those are our weekends. But she actually got, we actually had some time last week, and we sat down and watched a documentary on Netflix. I th it's still on Netflix. Someone checked for me this morning. Um, it's a documentary, hour and 15 minutes, not long. It's called Billy Graham, An Extraordinary Journey. You should watch this documentary. If nothing else, watch this clip. Will you roll that for us, Chris? Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I want people to know about Billy Graham other than he walked with the presidents and kings. But I want people to know that genuine Billy Graham is characterized in two things, humility and love for the lost people. You come by simple childlike faith like a little child would come to his father. The main thing when you meet him in person is that he will not take the oxygen out of the room, that he simply listens to you from the very minute you walk in. The person I'm knew was a person that, uh, while famous, uh, was a humble man, was easy to know. He was the kind of person that could read you pretty well and was able to absorb your anxieties. And he was a calming influence in many ways. One of my favorite stories about Billy Graham is out of the Memphis prison, they set up almost like a stadium inside the big prison yard and brought in the people from all the surrounding prisons. But when it was over, I went up and said, Billy, whenever I preach in the prisons, I always go into the segregation unit because those who are in isolation can't come out. And all the aides were trying to pull Dr. Graham away from the crowds. And he said, no, I want to follow Chuck. And so we went into the segregation unit, walked through from cell to cell. And the only way you could talk to them was through a little hole where you passed food through in this cold, dank, prison concrete floor. Billy Graham sat there and spent about 10 minutes leading that man to Christ. He took longer with that man on death row that day uh, than he had uh, taken almost to speak. He would be visiting the battlefields and oftentimes the hospitals. And I remember one time there was a soldier they'd brought in. He was in a striker frame. He'd been severely injured on the battlefield. 
And the only way Bill could see him was to get down on his back and slide under that hospital bed and look at him. And as the fellow looked and saw Mr. Graham on his back and Billy looking at him and saying, God bless you, buddy, let me pray for you. The tears coming down the soldier's eyes falling on Bill. Some of you are too young to remember at one time, Billy Graham was the most respected person in the world. Uh, poll after poll, easily the most respected person in the entire world. His ministry was incredible. And it wasn't, Billy Graham's humility did not come from the fact that he was not confident. Billy Graham knew he was a great preacher. He knew it. You don't book Madison Square Garden to preach unless you know you're going to bring a crowd. He knew it. He knew how good he was, but his humility is demonstrated in the fact that he did not see anybody as beneath him. He did not see any task as beneath him. He is the biggest preacher in the world, and he's crawling on his back to preach to one soldier who's probably a burn victim. He's crawling through the, the humid prisons, death row in Memphis, speaking to death row inmates through a little hole that slide food through, and sitting there giving them all of his concentration. Other places in that documentary, you'll see when San Francisco suffered an earthquake in 1989, he was one of the first people on the ground. It was funny, they were talking about people were saying, we're walking, somebody's walking down the street, handing them food and handing them medical supplies. And one go, is that Billy Graham? And he was literally just walking down the street, handing stuff out to people. He didn't see anything as beneath him. Confidence is not arrogance. Arrogance is just seeing people as competition or an audience, and Billy Graham didn't do that. Billy Graham saw everyone as their own, as a, as a creature of God, and he treated them that way, even at the risk of his own life. I was going to show another clip. I don't have time. But I'll summarize it this way. 1953, Billy Graham is called to preach a crusade in the Deep South. He said, okay. He said, I will do it on one, 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 one thing I'm going to insist on. One. You cannot segregate the audience, anyone who wants to come, white, black, Hispanic, whoever, and they can sit wherever they please. They said, okay. He gets to the stadium. He's walking up on stage. He looks up. They had segregated the audience with ropes. He looked at the usher, and he said, take those down. And the usher said, no, I won't do that. So standing on the stage, Billy Graham jumps off the stage in front of thousands of people, walks up, and just yanks the ropes down himself. Now, if you understand Deep South, 1953, you understand he risked a bullet to do that. But he didn't care because his humility came from the teaching of Jesus. You want to find your life? Lose it. Don't count yourself is more important than anyone else. Always remember Jesus had to go to the cross to save you because you are a sinner. I am a sinner. Keep that at the center of your heart every day to remind you who you are, to remind you that you are a, a, a rebel against God. You deserve death, but he still loves you so much he died for you. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for raising up men like Billy Graham and others so that we can see what humility really looks like. Help us to cultivate that. Help us to grow. Help us to put to death any arrogance we have in us, to just simply love each other and never see anyone as below us, never see any task as beneath us. All to your honor and glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, next week, Dad will be hitting Mark chapter 10. Be sure to read it. God bless you. God goes with you. See ya. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.